0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so glad you're here today. Today, my guest is Destiny Herndon De La Rosa. She's the founder of New Wave Feminists, a pro-life group that recently headed up a mission with 50 other pro-life groups to send over $100,000 worth of supplies, diapers, bottles, shower items, and all kinds of other things to the border for families that are being detained and need those things. Destiny is one of the most eloquent and powerful voices I've ever heard in the pro-life cause. I interviewed her several years ago and have always been impressed with what she has to say. And that's because as you'll hear, and she explains in this interview, she and her organization really exist to be pro-human and to decrease dehumanization overall. She was born to a teen mom and she had her first son at the age of 16, so she has personally experienced some of what many women are facing and speaks to that here. What I love about Destiny is that even if you don't agree with her on abortion, you can't help but respect what she's saying and the approach that she takes to these very personal issues of human crises and human life. From the unborn baby in her mother's womb to the man on death row to the woman holding her toddler attempting to give them a better life at the border. Destiny has said our humanity does not start at birth, nor does it end at the border. I couldn't agree more. The first few minutes of our interview, the audio is a little wonky, but please stay tuned. It gets better and you don't want to miss the golden words that Destiny shares. At the tail end of our conversation, I ask her to share about her sobriety journey as well, something I'm inspired by and think will be an encouragement to someone out there. Enjoy this conversation with Destiny Hernda de la Rosa. Destiny, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think it's so funny when I was looking at your Skype, I'm sure you know this, but your little handle, it says, Feministin so hard that Susan want to be me. <laughs> yes, my little Susan B. Anthony joke. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I, I mean, it was really small. I'm I'm surprised that I, I saw it, but it made me laugh. <laughs> I think I put
0: that up there a few years ago and then totally forgot about it. Yeah,
1: I'm <laughs> so. like, I made my Skype handle, I mean, must have been at least a decade ago. So whatever I am is is what I, what I thought. I know. No, it's so. like
0: it's our MySpace bios. Seriously. We have yeah,
1: because <laughs> a lot of times when people, I tell them we need to connect, connect by Skype, people are like, oh my gosh, like I haven't used Skype in so long. Um, so, well, last time you and I talked was, I think, about two and a half years ago, which it doesn't seem that long ago, but we talked right after your group, New Wave Feminist, was told they could not. Be a sponsor at the Women's March in Washington, D.C., which that's long ago, um, but it did rightly cause an uproar, and you spoke out about it then, um, you know, about the fact that no group, ideology, political persuasion, whatever, has an an own on the term feminist or women for that matter. Um, And so that was, I think you were able to get a good message out there at that time. And today I want to talk to you about another thing that your group has done to make headlines, and this time maybe a step, um, a step in a more positive light all around, which is that you have partnered with 27 other pro-life groups for a campaign called bottles to the border. And you have brought supplies to families, women, children that are in the detainment camps at the border. And it has been a huge success. I read that you've raised over hundred thousand dollars and have been able to bring a ton of stuff. So can you tell me about the campaign and what you've been able to do? Yeah.
0: So it was actually at final count over 50 other pro-life organizations. Oh, wow! So yeah, it was crazy. I kept having to update the flyer because I opened it up to anyone who wanted to partner with us and people just kept joining and kept joining and kept joining. And finally got to the point where the flyer looked ridiculous because like the actual <laughs> message was so tiny because there were so many sponsors, which is a great problem to have, you know, especially since we're told that the pro-life community doesn't care about this issue. And we know that that's patently false. You know, whenever they say pro-lifers aren't down at the border, it, I just have to roll my eyes because the very people who are down at the border are Catholic charities. Like it's pro-life mm-hmm. nuns who are doing all of the heavy lifting down there, <laughs> excuse me. And so knowing that that was inaccurate, um, we went back in December, we did our first bottles to the border. And at the time it was just new white feminists and we raised about 12 or $10,000 supplies. and just filled up a couple big vans and went and dropped stuff off and then actually went back to Costco because we still had more money to spend and reloaded and brought a second supply, you know, shipment back. Um, And at the time we were visiting Sister Norma Pimentel in McAllen, Texas, and she's at the Humanitarian Rest Center. And it was this old dilapidated like nursing home that they were using. And there was barely space for people, let alone these supplies. And so it was kind of like, here we were doing this thing that I thought was really helpful, but we also kind of felt like we were in the way a little bit, like taking up space. And so this time, um, we reached out to them. They are in a new facility that actually used to be a nightclub, which I think is hilarious. Mm -hmm. And so they have this huge space in the bottom and then they have this huge storage space in the top. And so we said, Hey, we want to do another drive and we've got other groups. So it's probably going to be more supplies. You know, do you guys have the room? And they were like, yeah, we actually do. And so We partnered, one of the groups we partnered with is In Then The Run, which is run by Abby Johnson, the former. Planned Parenthood director and she has a huge following. And so they ended up basically creating an Amazon wish list that sold out in a matter of two days. Wow. And this, yeah. So that was going to fill this U-Haul and they were like, we can't, you know, it was funny because the same thing happened to us in December where people kept giving us money and we're like, stop giving us money. <laughs> like we cannot physically buy all these supplies. Right. And so they, they had that happen and they're like, we, we had to shut it down. And then, um, a trucker actually reached out to them Kind donation of basically my truck and a driver and I will take these supplies down in a huge semi and it was just phenomenal. So got together another wish list and we ended up taking over $60,000 worth of just physical supplies down to the border. Um, Diapers, wipes, you know, baby supplies, feminine hygiene care supplies uh, bottles, formula, water, underwear, shoelaces, like all of these things that uh, chapstick and toiletries, you know, stuff that like they, they just need desperately down there. And we unloaded that all this weekend. And then, um, through new wave feminist, we, I think our final total was 133,000 raised so with the monetary donations. We will be divvying those up between two respite centers and then a legal aid fund that is working to reunite, um, children parents at the border. So it just, I, I never could have imagined that it would be such a huge success. Like I thought if we made it to 50,000, I'd be floored. And then all of a sudden, you know, in a matter of two weeks, 133,000, because that is how much the pro-life community does care. And they want to do something. I think we all want to do something besides just complain about politics on Facebook and we don't know
1: how, you know. Um, did you run into any of the problems about not being able to, to deliver items because they weren't allowing it?
0: No. So that is mostly the detainment center. So the detainment centers, which I have my own theory that they're being kind of kept abysmal on purpose as a deterrent. Like they, people try to take supplies. They will not let them in. But the respite centers are basically the facility that the detainees go to as soon as they get out of detain- uh, detention. So like ICE brings them to Sister Norma in McAllen. And so this is after they've been in detention for months. And You know, like I said, just need to be able to brush their teeth and take a shower and get a nice change of clothes and, you know, clean underwear and shoelaces and really basic stuff like that. And so um, that's where we took the supplies. And, yeah, there's no problem at all doing that. Um, I would highly recommend if anybody else has this on their heart, you know, doing a campaign through their church or community for bottles, things like that contact the local Catholic charities because most of them do work with respite centers and they can tell you exactly when and how to deliver supplies.
1: Okay. That's interesting. Cause I feel like that information, what you just said that people have not been hearing that. So I think that's really good information to be sharing. Um, now I, it sounds like you wouldn't have been able then to speak to any of the families that you were helping when you were there.
0: Uh, only because I don't speak Spanish, right? So that, that that was the only problem. Um, I actually, yeah, I went into the facility. I've gone in both times that I've been down there and I've played with babies Mm. and I actually, this last time I was down there and there was this gentleman holding a little, uh, I mean, I guess she was like three months old and he's, bouncing her all around. And I was trying to say, Oh, what's her name? What's her name? And he kept telling me how old she was. And I kept thinking that was her name and calling her that. And then finally I knew the little bit of Spanish. I knew I'm like, I am so stupid that he's telling me her age, not her name. And I felt like a huge, a huge moron, but no, I mean, we got to see the families, like there's kids everywhere, you know, playing toys and moms, you know, feeding their children. And you just, you see like, families. And I think that that kind of disrupts this narrative that, you know, it's MS-13. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's not, man. Like it's families. And that's definitely what we saw a lot of.
1: Now I saw, I've been, you know, kind of combing your social media for the past couple of days, and I'm just floored at some of the things I've seen, including your video uh, that you put up, live video that you did the day that you were delivering some, supr- some supplies, and you guys were stalled on your mission to do so because Congress was there getting a tour and giving a press conference and you were basically told, well, you're going to have to wait. Um, and, you know, they weren't doing anything worthwhile. They were just kind of there for the photo op. So can you explain that situation to the listeners?
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, it's funny now. I can laugh about it because it was just so poetic. Like, here are people actually trying to do something, and then you have like this photo op going on that was kind of standing it's in the way. It's so but symbolic. <laughs> it, it really is. But, you know, the narrative was, and at the time when I made that video, I didn't know if it was Republican or Democrats. Like, I didn't know who it was the day before um, Vice President Pence had actually been there. So I assumed that it was probably Republican members of Congress. Um, and so I was just like, I'm like, stop getting in our way. Like, do your little photo. photo. Photo op thing, but like make sure that we have access. We set this trip up for like three weeks in advance. They knew we were coming. Like we had a huge semi, and the road was blocked off because of security. And that's, I think that's the thing that ticked me off the most is like you can do your thing on the front of the building. Like we'll just drop the stuff off, but we couldn't get to the back of the building. And so it was funny because after the Congress members actually left, um, everyone cleared out of there and the cops forgot to take the roadblock down. And so Mm -hmm. my husband messaged me. I was around back, you know, helping. Uh, get the the uh, supplies out of my car that I had taken, and he's like, "What should we do about these barricades?" And I walked up and I was like, "I mean, are they going to arrest us? I don't know." And we just started moving them. And a friend of mine's like, this is this is what pro-life feminists like we take down barriers. And I was like, no, but seriously, we might go to jail for this. Like, but whatever, we got to get the truck in here somehow. So it was an inconvenience. I think the narrative that came from it by a lot of people was that, you know, oh, this is Democrats standing in the way. And I think what I want people to understand is it could have just as easily been Republicans. The problem right now is that the government is so gridlocked and we're so at each other's throats that nobody's willing to come up with actual solutions that help actual people people. It's all political theater and just who can score the most points on each side. And I think for me, that was the most frustrating part is that it it did actually hinder us dropping off Uh, the supplies when we had all these volunteers showing up and it slowed down the momentum a little bit. But, you know, eventually we got in there and I've never worked so hard in my life. Like my armpits are sore, which I didn't know that that's a part of your body (laughs) that could really get sore. And people are already asking me, like, when are we going to do it again? And I'm like, once my armpits heal, I guess, (laughs) like, I can't even think about another one yet.
1: So how close are you to the border where you live?
0: So I'm in Dallas. We were about eight and a half hours away.
1: Okay, so that was that was a haul for you for sure. Um, so you said something that I thought was really profound and it was something I hadn't heard really anyone else I don't feel like I've heard anyone else express this, and this is this is a quote from you. Many of these families will end up staying in the United States, and if they feel unwanted, they can really impact that can really impact how well they assimilate into our country and communities. And you're you were referring to that they feel unwanted and um I guess uh, I think this is such an important point. It's like regardless of where you are politically or if you support the president or whatever, like we as individual people, like these people um, are going to be part of our country and part of our part of our human landscape here in America. And and so I I'd just love to hear your thoughts on where you know where you came up with that and why you think that's important.
0: I think just reading all the accounts of what children are going through and knowing, you know, how trauma works, especially with children, and this idea that we are about to have a traum- traumatized populace that is joining our communities now because Uh, you know, most of these people will end up assimilating and staying here. And, you know, a toddler who's gone, you know, six months without seeing their parents and being in this weird, chaotic space being raised by other children. I mean, of course, that's going to have long-term effects. And then these people, you know, join our communities and it's, it's going to, that I made the comment, I think during that interview that these will likely be classmates of my kids one day. And so I think it's really important for us to just understand the human psyche and the damage that we're potentially doing to thousands of people um, when we have them in these inhumane spaces. And the thing that I keep coming back to, you know, this is a nonpartisan effort. We had people from all over the spectrum. We had people who believe in border security and want a wall and we had open border people, like we had everybody and we just, said, this is about people, not politics. And that was our whole message the whole time. And I think that's why we got so much momentum. But when we look at it that way, that look at the people then, let's not talk about politics. Let's just look at the human beings and what they're being put through right now. Like it will have long lasting effects on them. Um, We shared a story this morning about a border patrol uh, agent who was talking about what he had seen inside a McAllen facility, the same place that we were at. Uh, but in the detainment center, not the respite center age. And I think we have a tendency to, you know, participate in the othering of people, right? Like, Oh, these these are illegal aliens or whatever dehumanizing words that we want to use to make them not part of the human family. And so The day that we were headed down there, um, I wrote a post about this on New Wave Feminist that kind of ended up going viral, and it sort of surprised me. But I woke up that morning, and something told me I needed to go get rosaries for the individuals in in the respite center. And rosaries are something that are taken away from them by Border Patrol uh, when they enter detainment, as well as shoelaces, because they say that they can be used as a weapon. And I, I don't know why, I just, something kept pushing at me, like, go get them rosaries. So it was weird because I'm an agnostic. So me buying rosaries kind of felt silly, but I, I just felt something telling me I needed to do this. And as I was purchasing them, I realized that I think the motivating factor here was the the fact that I have also been stripped of my faith. Like, I know what it's like to grow up with the faith and have this comfort in some, you know, being that's bigger than you, taking care of you and watching out for you. And I know how hard it is to lose that and not have it. And so, the idea that some of these families, you know, can't even pray, can't even pray to something bigger than them because, you know, maybe they don't have the tools that they're used to, to be able to do that. Like, it was just something that I felt like I was personally supposed to take to them. And so that was one of the items that we took down there. Um, And I, I think that in sharing that story, I hope that I humanize the people at the border to some of our followers who are Catholic. And so it's not just... Republicans, Democrats or illegal immigrants or, you know, whatever it was that that this narrative has been created. But these are other Catholics. These are your sisters and brothers in the faith. Like, these are people that are very much like your neighbors spiritually. And this is why you need to care about them. And I think that the more that we can do that and Whether it's thinking long-term, this could be my child's classmate, or thinking, wow, that little boy is the same age as my little boy. Um, I think that when we humanize others, that really gets to the root of the issue that we're having right now.
1: I 100% agree with you, of course, that I don't think that, you know pro-lifers only care about people until they're born. Um, the argument that we hear all the time on our side. Um, but you had a great, another great quote where you said, our humanity does not start at birth, nor does it end at the border, which I thought was so, so powerful. And I do think sometimes, um, the pro-life movement can be a little bit too singularly focused on the unborn. I mean, obviously that's, a a massive, you know, need that we should be focused on. But sometimes I think people do neglect putting as much focus on other parts of humanity. Um, what is your response when you do hear this argument that pro-lifers only care about babies until they're born um, and don't care about other human groups?
0: I mean, obviously I hear that a lot and I don't think it's true because I know these people, like the people who are saying this are referencing politicians most of the time. They're not referencing, you know, my neighbor who built an addition onto their house so that they could house a single pregnant mother who had been kicked out. You know what I mean? Like those are the people who I know in my real everyday life who are driving people to prenatal appointments and who are helping, you know, people struggling with homelessness or addiction or veterans. Like we know that pro-life people are doing all this. They just don't do it with this, you know, brand of pro-life over their head when it's, they're doing it. Yeah,
1: it's just it. a, just the thing that they do.
0: It's just a human thing. And I think so really the criticism is more at politicians, but also organizations, right? So you look at Planned Parenthood, they're very good about branding themselves. They're out at every single march, you know, anti-war marches and immigration marches and science marches and women's marches, like they're everywhere with this branding. And the pro-life movement doesn't really have, you know, a counterpart for that. Like we don't have our own version that's doing this. And I think that that is what New Wave Feminists is trying to kind of illuminate to everyone is there are so many of us that are united to care about a whole life ethos. And so we follow something called the consistent life ethic, and a lot of pro-life groups actually do. Um, And so basically a belief that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their life. And we look at a person's human dignity, and we recognize their human dignity, whether they are on death row, or they're a migrant, or, you know a prisoner of war, like whatever it is, someone being human trafficked or in the womb when we're at our weakest and most vulnerable. So recognizing that human dignity and having a consistency, I think is really important. And one of the things that I feel, you know, the pro-life movement often does, there was a graphic that came out from a big pro-life group a while back, uh, beautiful graphic. I completely disagreed with it, but it was <laughs> basically, it was this big battleship and it said SS pro-life and on it, there were all of the issues, you know, like, immigration and death penalty and war and trafficking and abortion. And it was sinking because it had too many issues on it. Mm. And it's a powerful image. If you if you are being told that you are actually doing a disservice to the unborn by talking about these other things, then yeah, like that that image would resonate with you. But I have just found the exact opposite to be true. And I was explaining it to somebody that if you look at the you know, the, the abortion issue as like this metal ball and you have this laser that is just laser focused on this ball, like, and, and the politics of making abortion illegal. Right. And so you're going to poke a hole in this ball, but you're not actually going to get rid of abortion. It's all in all. I mean, we know it's a systemic issue. We know that even if it's made illegal, there's still going to be states. If it rose overturned, there's still going to be states that do keep it legal, there are going to be people that will be desperate enough, they will find a way to have an abortion. And mm-hmm. I think for me, that's when I realized that we have to illuminate all of these other issues as well. So not just the abortion issue, but all of them. And so I use the analogy that rather than being this laser that's just poking a hole in abortion, uh, we need to be this light that is shining a light on all of the these issues that denigrate human dignity. Mm-hmm. And when we start to do that, I find that they all actually are elevated. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, when I talk to someone who is very pro-choice, but I start talking to them about the issues we agree on together, the common ground issues, it's like that old adage that they don't care what you know till they know that you care. And suddenly when they see my heart for these other issues, they're like much more willing, uh, of course, to listen to me talk about abortion because they understand that I'm not just saying... You know, she should keep her legs closed or why wasn't she on the pill or, you know, whatever other ridiculous argument that they think I would be making as a pro-lifer. They hear me saying, no, let's look at, you know, um, the infant and maternal mortality rate among women of color. Why is it so high? Like, why Mm -hmm. are black women uh, so afraid, literally, of giving birth because there's some biases somewhere in the healthcare system. This is an issue Planned Parenthood's addressing, and they're addressing it from the wrong angle. They're saying, because Black women might be in danger through childbirth, they should have abortions. And I, I'm outraged by the, the conclusion that they come to, because the conclusion should obviously be, let's do better for Black women so they don't <laughs> yeah. to have to sacrifice their children for their own lives, right? right. So that makes no sense. But we see them jumping onto all these other issues and driving people towards violence and a culture of death. And I think pro-lifers have to be there to counteract that. We have to be the ones saying, no, let's look at everything through a lens of human dignity. And when we start doing that, suddenly a lot of issues start shifting, you know, and they they very much are pro-life issues. I think immigration is a pro-life issue, whether it's women in detainment who are having miscarriages because they're not getting proper, you know, nutrition and adequate medical care or women in the prison system, even who Mm -hmm. I, I just learned recently, they have to pay for prenatal vitamins out of their commissary and they have to pay a fee for the nurse to actually be able to give them their prenatal vitamins. Like that child had no say about being incarcerated. Like to me, that's, that's easily a pro-life issue that Mm -hmm. we can, we can show the broader culture, look, we
1: do care, you know? Yeah. So when it comes to the law, I think you've told me this before, but remind me, you're not focused on overturning Roe v. Wade. Like that is not something that you're worried about, or is it? I-
0: I think we're focused on something so much bigger than that, (laughs) that seems insurmountable, which is why no one wants to take it on. So what we say is we're not focused on making abortion illegal. We're focused on making it unthinkable and unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And a lot of pro-life people will say it's never necessary. And while I agree with you, when you're talking to, you know, the single mom of three kids who can barely keep food on the table for her other children, it feels very necessary to her. And so addressing things like poverty alleviation and mentorship and education and all of these other issues like that actually does lead to a pro-life culture. And in our current two-party system, we're always divided because we have one side that that's, hey, we're we're opposed to abortion, we'll overturn Roe but they aren't actually doing any of the cultural things it would take to make abortion unthinkable. Yeah, and, and, and likewise, the other side is doing a lot of these things, but then they're fine with abortion through all nine months, you know, which is horrifying. Yeah, And so I think a lot of us, because of that are politically homeless and we're just tired of voting and overturning Roe. Like that has become such a status quo thing. And I think we have to be thinking so, so, so much
1: bigger than that. So, did you have any strong feelings about the, well, I'm sure you have strong feelings about the New York law, which is in like nine other states as well. But what about Alabama? Did you think they're trying to do too much?
0: It's not necessarily that they're trying to do too much. I will always stand with the vulnerable and I always will support protection for the vulnerable. But I think we, again, have to realize the systemic issues. Like abortion is the end game. It's a symptom of the society that's not meeting the needs of women. So mm. when we just, you know, take a shot at that, but we don't address the desperation. My friend Mark Shea says that it's the difference between addressing supply and addressing demand. And so they want to cut off supply. But until you address demand, there will always be a level of desperation that finds a way to supply it. And, you know, I think that that is where we can come together, um, not even just as a pro life community, but with pro choice people too. Like, I challenge them all the time if you're truly consistent, you know, because what do they say to us? Like, well, if you're against abortion, why aren't you adopting all the kids in foster care? And why aren't you, you know, like they give us this laundry list. And so I say, if you're truly pro-choice, why aren't you supporting things like paid parental leave and, you know, housing for parents on campuses and, um, you know, all types of other systemic issues that leave pregnant women very vulnerable in the workplace and in academia. Like, that's something that we should all be in on this together uh, fighting for. And I don't see that a lot because I see that the abortion issue, the legality, row, right, Takes so much of the air out of the room that nobody thinks to address the other stuff. So that is why we say, like, that's just not our focus. There are plenty of groups focused on that. Like, we stay out of their way, like, do what you need to do. But ultimately, I think that whether Rose stays or goes, we can start working to create a pro life culture right now and this society that supports women right now. And the fruits of that is we are going to see fewer abortions.
1: Well, if people can't. Already tell you may not be you are not the quote the stereotypical pro lifer that may, many people may have in their minds like people may think oh conservative republican evangelical is pro life but you've already said you're agnostic and you wrote today on Facebook just not even a couple hours ago I think you said I'm too liberal for Republicans too conservative for Democrats too feminist for pro lifers and too pro life for feminists um, and then you said that you're a secular independent pro life feminist so I mean. That's a lot of, um, that's a lot of information about who you are, like politically and ideologically. Um, but you you say in the same post, like that's thinking for yourself. And, um, and you said this great line that I saw a ton of people quoting, humanizing all human beings is the ultimate cheat code. And that's just I mean, like, mic drop <laughs> right there. <laughs> um, that was so good. And um, so I guess let's talk for a minute about, you know, pro-life is not one type of person. It can be all types of people. It can be a Democrat. It can be a liberal. It can be uh, an atheist. Um yeah, I mean, we
0: have a beautifully diverse movement. And for people in it, we see it all the time. And the the thing that I said in that status update is like, we're all being played. This is a huge game right now. Like, we're in the matrix. And I just happened to unplug a couple years ago, so I can kind of see it for what it is. But we're all we're all being pit against each other right now. And a big part of that is the media that wants to portray us one way while the other side wants to portray us the other way. And everybody's missing the mark. Nobody seems to be understanding truly how diverse um, our movement is and the people that it's made up of. And the most encouraging thing for me after my little Facebook rant today was the number of comments of people who are like, yes, yes, like you're, you are speaking my language. Like I'm right there with you. I feel the exact same way. Like, I'm politically homeless. I don't know what to do with this. Like, how can we band together and build power? And, you know, the funny thing is, like, I have sworn off ever being a part of a political party again because <laughs> when when I left the Republican Party, I I really felt like I was going to lose all of my power because there's this tribe mentality, you know, that that when I'm with my tribe, like, then we're louder together. And I think we're so terrified of ever moving away from that and just having independent thoughts or challenging these thoughts publicly, right? Like with it behind closed doors, we can say like, yeah, I don't like that this person said this or did this, but we don't really usually call out bad behavior because, well, the other person on the other side's so much worse. And so we've got to, we have to keep justifying bad behavior. And so when I finally became an independent, it was such a bizarrely liberating experience for me, because it's like, I don't have to have blind allegiance to anyone anymore. And I can call out bad behavior and I can praise good behavior coming from both sides and say, we need more of this. Like, could you imagine tomorrow if we became a nation of independence? If people actually had (laughs) to awesome? our, oh my gosh, (laughs) totally. Right. Like people actually had to earn our votes and do what they said they were going to do and find creative solutions. And they weren't just pitting us against each other and You know, ruining Easter dinner for everybody and stuff like that, (laughs) where we're just arguing with our relatives all the time. Like, I think that would be really beautiful. And I think that there are so many people in the middle, but they don't want us to know that. And so we've joked around about, you know, we need to start a human dignity party. um, Because somebody actually just pitched me in the comments, they were like, so are you a libertarian? And I was like, no, because libertarians actually support abortion, which I think is a huge violation of the non-aggression principle, which is what they're rooted on. And so I was like, there is no party that, in my opinion, truly understands the human dignity of all human beings. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need a human dignity party, we need a party that just gets it. And I think, we would be floored by how many people would totally sign up for that because i especially think in religious circles it is definitely what um a lot of catholics tend to believe i through yeah. my experience what i found is you know they're pro immigration they're pro um life and so and and they're anti death penalty so it constantly kind of puts them at odds with voting republican and so what we all end up doing is Well, chronologically speaking, the first right is the right to life. So like that's the one we're going to go with. And I think that by this point, we have a government that understand and analysts and PR reps, they understand that. They know that as long as they stick a pro-life sticker over anything that they do, we will continue blindly supporting them, even if they have all of these other human rights violations going on. And I'm just, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being in that world to the point where... Like, I love voting, dude. You have no idea. I have been voting since the day I turned 18. I vote, I would vote for like, you know, dog catcher. Like, I vote for everything all the time. <laughs> I, I feel all Susan B. Anthony every time I do it. Like, I'm a huge fan. And yet I'm at this point now where I'm like, maybe the most rebellious thing I could do is not vote, which mm. I know I'll never actually be able to do. Like, I'll totally write in Vermitt Supreme or something before I do that. <laughs> um, do you
1: think Donald Trump is actually pro-life?
0: I think he's a very good businessman and he knows exactly what to do. I mean, he went on the record saying things like, yeah, if I ever ran, I'd probably run as a Republican. It would be easier. Like he was pro-choice his whole life until he magically became pro-life when he decided that he wanted to run as a Republican. And Mm -hmm. I I just don't because what I see, the heart of true pro-life people that I see is that love of human beings. And one of the things, as these articles have come out about the work we're doing at the border for the last few weeks, one of the most disturbing things is the number of Trump supporters who are like, send them all back, let them die in cages. I mean, like this disgusting, dehumanizing, like comments and rhetoric that's going around. And I'm thinking every one of you jerks would probably say that you're pro-life. And because Mm. that is, we have redefined what it means to be pro-life. You are politically pro-life, but you're not actually pro all lives and that's why I think Donald Trump was even though he's touted as the most pro-life president ever I think he did some really dangerous like redistricting in what it means to actually be pro-life because it it is about political gain and I whenever I say this it, it, people you know it gets into conspiracy theory kind of like realm a little bit but mm-hmm. I honestly don't know if anybody wants to actually eradicate abortion, because could you imagine if it wasn't an issue tomorrow? Like, it would turn politics on its head. That is the way Democrats get people out. That is the way Republicans get people out. Sort of the
1: same with immigration, really, though. Oh, totally, totally. So if we solve the problem,
0: they would lose such a base of support, and they have to keep it there. And that's why I was saying, like, I think we're in the matrix. I think that somebody is pulling the strings to keep us constantly at odds because it's good for these politicians and for their bases. And it's so toxic and so bad for us. But as somebody who truly wants to see abortion become unthinkable, I think that's why I'm just not getting too caught up in a lot of these laws. Like, again, I'll always support protection, you know, protecting the vulnerable and the innocent. But
1: it also, to me, comes off as political theater more times than not. I agree. Um, Someone set comments i posted oh yesterday i posted on my facebook page the article that you posted about the woman that um she had written something saying oh pro-lifers are doing nothing at the border and then she saw what you guys were doing and she basically wrote a rewrote her article saying uh actually i was wrong and there are actually like 50 pro-life groups that are helping at the border do you know what i'm talking about Yeah, yeah.
0: It was it was an amazing post because what had happened was she wrote this thing that was like pro-lifers don't care about children dying at the border. (laughs) Yeah. And this came out on the Saturday that we were in McAllen doing the actual work. And you see that and you go, "Uh, excuse me. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm having it like messaged to me to me every single social media platform is blowing up with people like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And they're doing the same thing to her. They're going off on her like new way feminists. And then there were none are down there right now. Like, what are you talking about? Like, clearly you just don't want to see it. But I mean, we've heard this for a long time. I remember Joy Behar, like six months ago, had said, well, I don't see any pro-lifers down at the border. And my response to Joy Behar was, it must be because you're not down at the border. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. we're there. So, and so, I mean, it's definitely a narrative that keeps just getting perpetuated. But she had posted that this article was viewed like over 800. 800, 800 a hundred thousand times it was some obscene number like it's it's been viewed so many times and so I commented and I said yeah confirmation bias is so hot right now yes. and then had like the picture from Zoolander right where is mm-hmm. so hot right now and um she wrote me back and she was like it's not very feminist to tear down other women and I said I totally agree so please stop acting like we don't exist like and we're not out there at the border and then she goes this is interesting do you have time for an interview and I was like absolutely like let's do oh, this good and on we her had, Well, we had a great conversation because if you think about it, we both care about the same thing. I am trying to activate the pro-life community to do more for the border. And so is she. And so once we kind of got past, like, I was being real salty. I was exhausted. I was on my way back from McAllen. (laughs) And I I apologize for that. And, like, normally I'm a lovely person. I was being a little salty in your your Twitter feed. Uh, And once we got past that, though, like, we had so much common ground. And she's like, the work you guys are doing is amazing. And I love what your group stands for. And she was so complimentary. And then she writes this article that said, I called pro lifers silent and then I heard them roar. And I was like, that has to be the most badass title That's I've ever. That's the heard best for headline. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, on that note, um, it's just funny since I've been working in kind of the realm of political journalism in the political space for my whole professional career, whenever I see a headline from like a somewhat partisan source, which I mean, I guess that could be any source these days, but that says something like, you know, some, such and such leaders are saying nothing or so-and-so is doing nothing. These groups, I always take it with a grain of salt. And I say, who's yeah. writing it? What publication is that? Because chances are they they actually aren't getting the full story and it is confirmation bias. And then people see it and it spreads like wildfire. Uh, that's, I guess, just to say, do your due diligence when you read a headline and don't just believe everything well, you read.
0: <laughs> and honestly, like circling back to the Women's March, that's how we got into the women's march and then subsequently kicked out of it because all of these pro-life articles kept saying pro-life women not welcome at the women's march and i kept seeing it over and over and over again because pro-lifers were perpetuating the lie this time And so that's when I went and I um, applied for sponsorship Mm -hmm. and then we were approved. And so then the Atlantic actually did an article where they were like, oh, okay, I guess they are taking pro-lifers. And like, I made it very clear we were pro-life. They 100% knew we were pro-life. But then once it became like public knowledge, then all of the pro-choice left came after us. And was like, remove them immediately. And unfortunately they caved to that pressure and removed us. But it was something where it was just like, I didn't take it at face value that we weren't allowed. Like I went and actually confirmed it. And in the weirdest, you know, way, I confirmed that they weren't and then that they actually did ultimately. But it was something where I'm like, if they really truly are excluding pro-lifers, then let's get to the bottom of it. Like I I want to hold their feet to the fire and I want to know for sure this is happening. And I think that when we do get past a headline and we actually contact the author or, you know, tweet them, message them, whatever, and say like okay, do you know this is going on? Sometimes it is just a matter of them being in their own bubble and they don't know better. And I think giving people the grace to backpedal, we live in a culture that is so, it's at such a fever pitch right now that when you make a mistake, you're expected to double down. And like the other day, uh, I posted on New Wave Feminist that we were talking about Dr. Lena Wynn, like from mm-hmm. the head of Planned Parenthood, right? Being removed. And she had only been there for eight months. And I was like, there's a joke in here somewhere, but I'm too exhausted. And so all of a sudden, people were like, oh, they didn't fire a person. They terminated a presidency. I saw that and, a million you know, times. Yes. Yeah. And so they're they're making all these jokes, and we're all, like, laughing and good fun. And then somebody puts in the comments, like, did you know she actually had a miscarriage just last week? Mm-hmm. And suddenly it was just like the wind was taking out of me. Yeah. i heartbroken for this woman. And I'm like you know, we're not making fun of her, we're making fun of Planned Parenthood, but that's still not okay. And so I immediately deleted all the posts off our social media. And I said, like, the last thing we want to do, even though we weren't poking fun at her, it was more at Planned Parenthood. But like, if we're off, if we are adding any more suffering to what she is already going through, we don't want to do that. Like, this is a chance for the pro-life community to step up and love her. Because Planned Parenthood clearly didn't do that. You know, she's going through this horrible thing. And to them, it's a clump of cells. So it's no big deal to fire her in the middle of it. But we know better than that. And this is our chance to reach out. And there were so many people in the comments who were like, thank you for taking it down. Like, it Mm -hmm. really did bother me that we were poking fun at someone else's misfortune. And I love the fact that I have a community that gives me grace when I screw up, you know, and that I feel safe acknowledging that I've made a mistake. And, you know, apologizing for it and not just being canceled because we live in such a cancel culture
1: that a lot of,
0: a lot of politicians and activists don't have that. And so we see them doubling down on mistakes.
1: Oh my gosh, Destiny. I wish there were more people like you out there. (laughs) I think that you are really such a great voice for our movement of, you know, which I consider myself a part. And I don't feel like we're hearing what you're saying loud enough, often enough at all. So I'm so grateful for you to, to sharing this. Um, I also wanted to just ask you, and I know a little bit of this, but what made you pro-life? What's your personal story? So my personal story is that my mom
0: actually got pregnant with me when she was 19. She was at the University of Texas, and she ended up having to quit school. There just weren't any accommodations for her there. And she moved back home with my grandparents, and it took her 10 years to complete her degree. And life was really hard. There was a lot of struggle. And, um, you know, we experienced poverty and abuse and all the things that you hear for why someone like me should have been terminated. Mm -hmm. And So I've lived those things firsthand and she had a couple failed marriages and there were times that were really dysfunctional, but like my mom was my champion. She was always there for me. Like she is the reason to this day that I am a feminist because she used what little privilege she had to defend me, you know, the, this marginalized human being who didn't have a voice at the time. And I will forever be grateful for that. Um, And then when I was 16, I actually ended up pregnant myself, and I was so angry at myself because, like, if anybody knew better than to repeat this cycle, I had firsthand experience on why it was, you know, something I I, I just, I should have done better, I should have known better what was I thinking, but I also knew that this was a human being and that there was this new life inside of me, and yes, it was in my body, but it wasn't my body, and I, you know, I grew up with a copy of that Time magazine spread on like our coffee table that had all of the pictures of fetal development at each stage. And this was from like the 70s, but it's the most beautiful images. And from day one, it's it's its own unique genetic creation. And I knew that. And I I was always very aware of that. So when I became pregnant with my son, I never considered abortion. But I do remember vividly having this feeling of like I want to rip my stomach off of my body and run away from it. Like I was mm. terrified. And I think that that's given me a lot of empathy for women who are facing crisis pregnancies because I get it. I get that you are in this storm of chaos. And for me, the calm in that storm was my family surrounding me and not yelling at me and not condemning me or judging me, but saying like, we're here for you and we're going to help you. Like we're all in this together. And there are so many women who don't have that. And, you know, they're going to be kicked out of their house or it's their parents who are driving them to the abortion clinic and forcing it to happen. And, so in my experience, like, that's not the pro-woman solution, obviously. that's Oftentimes, it's not even the woman's choice. Like, this is how society is, you know, it's it's a Band-Aid, and, and it's lazy activism, and it's not wanting to step up. It's just pushing a woman into this violent decision against her own child. The, the pro-life and the powerful and the one that actually takes effort Solution is surrounding that person with support and helping them and having them carry that pregnancy. And, you know, it always cracks me up when people call me anti choice because I'm like, I'm anti one choice. I'm anti abortion, like the one thing that ends a human life. I'm anti the one violent choice. But once you choose life, like you have so many choices ahead of you, you know, am I, am I going to, you know, consider adoption? I considered adoption for the first six months of my pregnancy very heavily. And what does that look like? Open adoption, closed adoption, what types of, you know, choices would I want to make that would be best for myself and for my child? And, Um, you know, then, okay, am I going to give birth in a hospital bed with drugs? Or am I going to do it in a hippie bathtub in the middle of my floor? Like, I mean, there's just, there's so many choices, it never ends. And so it's like, no, I'm, I'm very, very pro-choice. I'm just anti the one violent choice. And so I think all of that kind of culminating together has led to the activism that, um, you know, I now try to model with new wave feminists is, to be just as pro the child, I have been on both sides of that coin. I've been mm-hmm. the fetus that could have easily been aborted. And I've also been the pregnant teenager who's terrified out of her mind.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: that that does give me kind of a unique perspective.
1: Yeah, I am. Um, well, there's many things that I dislike about Planned Parenthood. But one of the major ones is that they don't talk about adoption. They don't lay it out there like as an equal option, you know, even though they say that they support it. Um, And I know that just from speaking with a couple of friends that have been there and been through it. And, um, and so that's always the, or
0: or continuing your pregnancy. I mean, they don't have prenatal care.
1: Right. They don't have prenatal care. They don't have, they're not providing the resources that crisis pregnancy centers are providing. And then they're trying to, and then they're trying to shut down crisis pregnancy centers, which is insane. Um, because those are the people that are actually providing resources for women who do choose life. I mean,
0: it doesn't get more anti-choice than that. <laughs> you know, you have, you have this one option with us. That's all we're going to
1: provide for you.
0: And we're going to make sure that you have no other options, but yet we're the anti-choice ones, <laughs> like make
1: zero sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I always want to be careful, you know, cause I'm like, okay. I mean, I think they do provide like something for some women, like some kind of like birth control right. or whatever it is that they do. Um, that's not abortion. Um, I I do think that they can be helpful to women in that way. Um, But like just that whole other side of it, and then some of the undercover investigations about them, like not reporting statutory rape on numerous, um, numerous times. Uh, There's a lot too many questionable. There's there's a lot of
0: shady stuff. And as an uninsured woman in Texas, I can tell you that that feels like I have no choice but Planned Parenthood, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, truly being pro-choice would be giving me other options and me having other places that I could go for well-woman care. And because Planned Parenthood kind of has this monopoly right now, I think it would be a really beautiful initiative of the pro-life movement, you know, to create full-service healthcare uh, facilities that offer everything but abortion. And, of course, we're always going to squabble about the birth control issue because of a lot of religious leanings within the movement. But even if you can just get to a place where you're doing cervical exams and things like that, like that would be huge for our movement. And it would show that we do care about the woman because – I will say the thing that used to drive me the craziest back when I did sidewalk counseling here in Texas is you would have all these volunteers who would stand out there during what we called abortion hours when we knew that the doctors were performing them um, on different days of the week. And you'd stand out there and you'd try to talk the woman into choosing life and, you know, very seldom would she. But then as soon as the abortion hours were over, everybody would leave. And I would stay out there as the women were leaving the center because um, I had some put some post-abortion healing pamphlets Mm. that I would hand out to them. And I would see these girls just tear-stained cheeks, like, just looking so broken. Like, there was nothing liberating about how that woman came out of there. And Mm. I thought, you know, is it hard for her to have seen 20 people who cared, you know, were claiming to care about her and the child as she went into that clinic, and then only one person as she came out? Like, Do do we show women enough that we care about them no matter what, that we care about them as much as we care about that child? And yes, we want to save that child, but she's equally as important. And I think that that is where a pro-life feminist narrative is very important because we don't put the mother over the child or the child over the mother. In our mind, they are completely equal and they both deserve that care and love and respect. And these women, as they're leaving after an abortion decision, I can tell you, like, they need us now or like at that moment more than they
1: ever have. That is so, (laughs) you make me want to cry. That's so powerful. Um, you know, I think another statistic that's important to point out, which I don't have the exact number is that, you know, women that have one abortion, those, you know, they're more likely, you know, to have another one than others. Yeah. So, so I don't know, like by being supportive and, and being there in that situation, you know, maybe there is a chance that you would help them in the future, maybe make a different decision just by showing them love a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So along with this, you know, huge life journey that you've been on, um, you know, with your organization and with your own life, raising your kids, um, you last year, and I just wanted to touch on this cause I was just so impressed by it. You last year basically announced on Facebook that you stopped drinking, but it wasn't just like, oh, hey, I stopped drinking. It was like, here's the story. (laughs) (laughs) And you went into some major personal details about some stuff that you went through that led you to recognizing that you had to stop and you needed to get a handle on this. So I think that people don't talk about that enough. I think more people have an issue with alcohol than want to admit it. Um this year I uh I don't know if you're familiar with Annie Grace. Have you heard of her? Yeah,
0: The Naked Mind.
1: Yeah, so she was on the podcast actually. I had around a few oh months gosh, ago. That's awesome. And I got involved or started doing the 30-day challenge that she does and just got really into all that stuff was reading her book, reading a bunch of other books about sobriety. Um, Not because I, I felt that I had a major problem, but I did feel like I had like an attachment that was unhealthy and um, have really changed my relationship with alcohol. So when I read your story, I was just really fascinated and intrigued. And so I would just love to hear, like, how did you do it? How's it going? And like, can you offer any encouragement to women who may be too scared to take that step?
0: Yeah, so I definitely do think that it is a cultural thing that's happening right now, especially with moms. Like, I was very much a part of, like, the wine mom culture where it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do playdates with booze and go to the pool with booze and go to the park with booze and, like, everything was just very Um, consumed with alcohol, like that was a part of everything we did, because we're moms, and we deserve it. And this is what we need. And for me, it just had become really progressive. And some boundaries I had set for myself, I started just blowing past. And that's what ultimately scared me was um, how it was so normalized as just this way of coping with stress. Mm -hmm. And it had really infiltrated so many aspects of my life where it was like, that was my reward. That was the carrot on the end of the stick, like, every day. And I'm normally a very positive person. Like, you know, I Pollyanna my husband to death. He can't stand it because he's mm. kind of the opposite of me. But I'm like, oh, look at the silver lining. And, like, yeah, there, okay, there's this great Ronald Reagan quote where he's talking about, um, I guess, this huge pile of poop. And he's, like, <laughs> talks about, like, shoveling it out, right? And he's like, there must be a donkey in here somewhere. Like, and or a pony in here somewhere. It's something like that. Like, always looking for the positive. Like, yeah. oh, if there's a pile yeah. of poop. There has to be a pony around here, right? Like, we... <laughs> we have something to look forward to. Like that is a hundred percent me all the time. And I drive everyone in my family crazy with it. But what I found that I was doing because of alcohol was I would give myself excuses to drink at the end of the night by really, um, focusing on the negative of my day. Like, Oh, you know, this kid had a meltdown or I got a flat tire or this went wrong or whatever. Like, give me my, give me my wine. And it really was turning who I am as a person into somebody that was very negative. And it, I, I, I don't know. I just knew I needed to pump the brakes. And I'll be totally honest. I don't know that I will never drink again. I know that it had become a problem at that time. And so I actually went to an anonymous meeting that you're not supposed to talk about that I talk about all the time. <laughs> I'm, one of my friends jokes that I'm an alcoholic's obvious because I never shut up about it. And I'm just I'm garbage at the
1: anonymity part. I think that's but better. Way better.
0: I think it's better as long as I don't fall off the wagon. Then
1: it'll be like Right, right. But it, it may help, but, though. It may help to be out there a little bit more.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think that I felt like I was very public with my drinking and so I need to be public with my recovery as well. Mm-hmm. So I started going to these meetings and, you know, you're in there with people who are like heroin addicts, like you're in there with people who are this wide spectrum. And so really early on, I'm like, I don't even know that I belong here. I'm just like a wine mom, like it's not that bad. And then I started like hearing a lot of similarities in, in our stories that all of us were basically like holding ourselves back from what we could be doing if we were clear headed and so reminded and just in control of our thoughts and our actions more and weren't kind of prisoner to this, this carrot on the end of the stick all the time. And so I ended up, um, really getting into that for a long time and learning a lot of the tools and the coping mechanisms and working the steps. And it was just really life changing for me. And it's funny because at this point, like I, I was talking to someone last weekend and they said, there's a difference between, what did she say? Abuse, dependence, and addiction. And I just, so it was dependence, abuse, and addiction. And Mm -hmm. she said that, you know, there are some people who just have a little bit of dependence. There are other people who are abusing it. There are other people who are addicts and I'm constantly going back and forth. Like, where was I on that scale? Because like I could leave half a glass of wine undrained. I'm like, and so I don't know that I was like a full-blown alcoholic, but I do know that I've benefited so much from sobriety that I want to share that story with people. And I want other people who, you know, like you, are in a position of like, I don't know that it's a problem yet, but it could become one. and maybe I need to start watching out for it and maybe I need to pump the brakes myself and maybe I need to give the sobriety thing a shot. And I can say that ever since getting sober, like there's just this clarity in in my heart, and I like I said, I mean, I'm still agnostic and I I don't know what I believe as far as God, but one of the big focuses for AA in particular is that you have a higher power and that there is something outside of yourself. And I feel like for the first time in my life, I've really been able to kind of channel that and see that because there's not all this muck getting in the way anymore. And it is realizing that like, I can only do the best that I can do, but I have to depend on something outside of myself to help me through every single day. And you take it one day at a time and- I've just seen the fruits of that—that that my life has gotten really beautiful, um, because I'm no longer kind of like, I don't know. Well, what do you so do when overrun. you run?
1: Ha- what do you do when you have those moments where you get the cravings, um, where you're just like, oh, I wish I could drink right now.
0: So, okay. So one of the things that they say in recovery is what might get one person drunk might get another person sober. So I always preface this tip with that. Okay. This, this works for me. It might not work for other people. When I was first in recovery, I would have those because we'd be going to a concert or my first sober wedding. Oh my gosh. Like that one was tough and stuff like that, right? That you're so used to drinking at these things and holidays and whatnot. And so what I would do is I would be like, okay, I'm not going to drink at this thing. And then I found that my mind was getting really obsessive. Like, oh, come on. Maybe you can. And I would just sit there and argue with myself internally all day long. And so finally I got to this point where I was like, fine, I'll drink at it. And I would not think about it again until the moment that the waitress came to the table, you know, and said, what can I get you to drink? And then I had to pull every bit of sobriety that I had like cold together, like in that moment and say, I would like a Dr. Pepper, you know, or (laughs) a with Chico or whatever. And so there's this really ridiculous movie called, um, we bought a zoo and it's got Matt Damon in it. Oh, I've seen and it. Yeah. It's, cheesy. My kids love it. And, but there's this one line where he's talking about, I believe it's like 20 seconds of courage or bravery. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you, you don't have to be brave all the time. You just have to be brave for like 20 seconds and it can change your life. Like these huge courageous moments. And so I started doing that with 20 seconds of sobriety. Like I don't have to be focused on my sobriety all the time. I just have to be focused on my sobriety when it really, really matters when it's like right there in front of me. For me, that worked. For somebody else, that might be completely the downfall to their sobriety. So I'm not recommending it. But that's how I deal with the cravings. You know, I sit there and think, okay, I don't know, maybe I will drink wine when I get home. And then when I get home, I just don't do it. You know, like staying sober is actually an inaction, not an action. And so when we think of it that way, I think it's a lot easier.
1: Yeah. Annie Grace always talks about. how she's like, I'm not going to say that I'm never going to drink again. I'm just going to say I'll drink what I want to. And you know, I just don't usually want to. And I do think that you giving yourself that permission, like really takes the pressure off. It's such a mental game. It really is. Um, well, thanks for sharing that with me. I just, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's good that people are talking about it because I think more people have a, probably more of the dependent side, you know, rather than the addiction side, especially here in mommy world that many of us live in. Um, So um, I just think it was great that you were so open about it. So thank you. So I just have just a couple more questions, end of podcast questions. Um, And this is a big one and I probably should have prepped uh, prepped you for it. But is there a piece of advice or kind of a message that you want to pass on to your kids?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I've been thinking about that a lot lately, because someone asked me on a podcast, actually, a few weeks ago, like, if you had one wish, would you wish for abortion to not exist anymore? And I said, like, no, no, if I had one wish, it would be that dehumanization doesn't exist anymore. Because I feel that dehumanization is at the root of every single societal ill that we have. And that's something that I'm really trying to show my kids through my work. And so I usually try to take one with me when I go speak at events and they travel with me and I want them to see it. I don't, I joke that I don't want to have like Ronald Reagan kids where it's like, because. (laughs) Because they saw me doing this, like, they rebelled against it as hardcore as possible and resented it, right? Like, no, like, I want to bring them along. I want them to understand what a true culture of life looks like and empathy and um, compassion. And all of that is rooted in humanizing human beings. And I think that a lot of times for so many of us, myself included, I stumble all the time, right? Like, it becomes... Well, in an attempt to humanize the unborn, we're going to dehumanize these people. Like these are the bad guys. These are the villains, and that's what pumps us up to work against them. And I have to catch myself when I start doing that, um, and really say, okay, I don't know somebody's story. One of the big examples that we've been talking about recently is like Epstein, right? And this, like, mm-hmm. there there is not a portion of the human family that I have a harder time humanizing than people who mess with kids. Like, yeah. I have. I have, I, and I think that's most of us, right? Like we have such disdain for these people, but I have to also remind myself, like, I don't know what happened to him as a child and I don't right. know what he experienced and what could have led him to be that way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't excuse anything at all. And we have to like seek justice in these cases, but it doesn't mean that I have to become a monster myself. And we see that a lot. I think in this culture where it's like, you know, there's a mass school shooting or there's something that horrible happens. And, you know, Facebook will do like a live of the, of the hearing and you'll just see comments filled with people who are like, burn in hell. Like this person needs to die. I hope this happens to him in prison or whatever other horrible thing. And it's like, don't you understand that dehumanization breeds more dehumanization? Yes. And like the only anecdote to that is to humanize others I- as hard as it can be. And I think that when you start practicing it, you get better at it. And I didn't start practicing that till I was in my twenties. So I really hope that my kids can start practicing it much younger.
1: Oh, that's such a good message. I, I, you know, that really resonated with me where you said, when you hear people say, I hope he burns in hell. Cause whenever I see that, it really uh, bothers me because I, I cannot wish that upon anybody, and I don't care right. what they've done. I could never wish it. And, um, I'm not saying that I'm better, you know, that I have more self-control or something, but I do think that you're right. Like, doesn't matter who the person is if that's the kind of feeling that's being put out into the world that is contributing to the dehumanization of everyone all around and it's just not i mean spiritually speaking like you know big you know big spiritually speaking like that you put that out into the world it's not going to give anything good back to you so um okay do you have any books that you've read recently podcast tv shows things that you could recommend
0: Yes. So books, um, Charles Knici, Char Charlie Kamisi, who he is a professor and I cannot remember the college now, but he just wrote a book. About throwaway culture, and it's called resisting throwaway culture, and it's about the consistent life ethic, and I think that's a really good one for people who maybe want to understand um, because it it takes abortion, but then also you know the way that we're treating homeless people and um, just anybody in our culture that we throw away because they're inconvenient to us and this mentality that we've started developing and how dangerous it is. And I think that uh, it's a really good kind of primer to understand um, what the consistent life ethic looks like um, and then, as far as like podcasts, so I do a lot of road tripping to speaking engagements, and I listen to the moth nonstop. Mm. So I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's just like a story. like it's it's little ten to fifteen minute stories. And a lot of them challenge me. It'll be people talking about the stories of their abortions or um, you know, other things that I completely disagree with. And yet, being able to hear their stories humanizes those people and I always find myself just you know when you hear a really good story and then you're chewing on it for days afterwards like this is the conclusion they came to this is the conclusion I would have come to for you know as a solution to this but like maybe there's a creative solution that would be better for everybody involved and that podcast does that to me more than anything else where it's like it constantly just has my synapses like firing in different directions like of like yeah. how, can, how can we help people better and I think by hearing people's stories and understanding understanding where they're coming from, it also takes away whatever that reaction is that so many of us have where we are incapable of civil discourse because we're always, you know, I think I know what you are based on these labels you've given me. And so I'm going to yell at you for this, but like hearing somebody's story is the best way to fight that because now you understand where their heart's at. And like nine times out of 10, it's in a really, really good place. Like even the people who support things that we can't understand, like the more that we understand them, the more we can understand that kind of how we can talk to them in a way that gets them to see their own inconsistencies. And I I just think that's really important.
1: All right, Destiny. Well, I have kept you way longer than necessary. (laughs) I'm so sorry that this went on so long. No, this is so fun. Uh, But thank you for doing it. I just think your perspective is so important and I wish that everyone would listen to this podcast interview because I think it would do them all a lot of good. So um, I'm going to be keeping an eye on everything you're doing and I, I don't think we've met in person, but I hope someday we get to. Yes, we have to make that happen. Thank you so much for having me on. If you enjoyed this conversation with Destiny, please consider taking a screenshot and sharing it on your Instagram stories, Twitter, or Facebook. I'd love to get the message out to more people. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Destiny. Uh, It was one of the most encouraging and uplifting, um, positive interviews I've done in a long time. And as I told you in the beginning, I love everything she has to say and really appreciate the voice that she brings to the pro life movement. See you next Tuesday.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com slash ct.